Support for IPR comes from Mirden Supel and Downer, attorneys at law, dedicated to providing comprehensive legal solutions for Eastern Iowa since 1948. Located in downtown Iowa City and at MirdenLaw.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later this hour, we know that exercise can be beneficial for mental health, but we still don't fully understand why that is and how it works. Iowa State University kinesiologist Jacob Meyer is conducting research designed to figure out exactly how exercise improves our mental health and how we can harness that power. But first, if you've attended a Hawkeye football game in the last 13 years or even just watched them on television, there's a good chance you've gotten a glimpse of Hawkeye Elvis. He's decked out in a black and gold bedazzled jumpsuit, sunglasses, and a wig. It's an Elvis of the Vegas years kind of look, and everyone loves it. The man inside the jumpsuit is Hawkeye super fan Greg Succo, and he's gotten a lot of fan and media attention over the years. Now a new short documentary reveals the sweet story behind the fun. You can watch the documentary on YouTube. It's featured in a channel called Nowness, N-O-W-N-E-S-S. But you can also find it just by searching for Hawkeye Elvis. It is the work of filmmaker Skylar Knutson. And the film shows us that Greg inherited his love of Elvis from his super fan mom. I refuse to believe that Elvis is dead because that's just impossible. Is Jesus dead? There you go. <laughs> I don't think he's dead because she'll hit me if I say yes. <laughs> I still believe he's, he's in hiding. I've been doing Elvis a long time, honey, so what else could I believe? <laughs> you know? Yeah, what, what is it about him that you're so attracted to? Where, where did you go to school? <laughs> well, it was Elvis, man. <laughs> I don't know. There was nothing else. That's just a moment from the new documentary. And filmmaker Skylar Knutson is here with me. Hello, Skylar. Hey, thanks for uh, having me and Greg on. And as you just mentioned, Greg Asuko. Asuko is also here, Hawkeye Elvis himself. Hello, Greg. Good morning, Charity. Thank you both so much for being here. And, and Greg, I do want to start with you because this dates back to 2010 when you started putting on the Elvis jumpsuit. How did this get started? I've always been a huge Elvis fan. And again, I, I got that from my mom. Uh, mom grew up a, an Elvis fan uh, from the time uh, that she lived, you know, in the 50s and stuff. And I would listen to my mom's old Elvis records, her 78 RPMs, if people remember and know what those are. And so I've always been a huge Elvis fan. And uh, I've always been a big Hawkeye fan. And one year at a Halloween game, I noticed everybody in the crowd had these awesome black and gold costumes. And so I went back to mom's house and I asked her if she could make me a, an Elvis jumpsuit. And she said, well, of course I can. Uh, had my mom not worked for the DOT for 25 years, she could have easily gone to Hollywood and worked in the costume department of any TV or movie studio because she would always like hand make uh, her grandkids Halloween costumes. And so she made me uh, a black and gold jumpsuit, and I, I wore it to a game in October of uh, 2010, and it, that's how it all started. Well, and, and for people who haven't seen you, I mean, they should just do an image search right now, because these jumpsuits that you wear are elaborate. I mean, as you were just saying, your mom has done incredible work. This is so much more than just a costume. Yeah, it's, uh, well, she loves to sew. I mean, I mean, I think mom had like five or six different sewing machines uh, in her house. And then 
she'd measure me and then design each jumpsuit. And, and some of them she would put rhinestones on. Some of them she would put, um, you know, just root, you know, all kinds of different designs and stuff and, and make one a little bit different each time. So, I mean, Greg, you're clearly a, a super fan of the Hawkeyes. By day, you're an attorney who lives up in the Twin Cities, but you, you come down to Iowa City for the games. After you put on that costume for the first time, what was it about that experience that made you think, yeah, I'm just going to keep on doing this? You know, I, I wore it to that one football game because it was Halloween, and then I wore it to one basketball game. And then the next year, I'd wear it to two football games and two basketball games. And then when I wouldn't wear it, people people in my section would go, hey, wait a minute, how come Elvis isn't here? We we need Elvis here today. And I think it really took off in 2014 when I went down to Chapel Hill, North Carolina with some friends for the Iowa at North Carolina game. And I happened to be right behind the basket, and it was a close game, and there's this picture of myself, Mike Gazelle, Adam Woodbury, and Jared Utoff all celebrating at the end of the game, and I'm right there with them. And it, it kind of exploded from there, and that's... That's when people started paying more attention to it. And so I kept doing it. And I mean, you go beyond just looking like Elvis. I've heard you sing. I've seen you dance. Have you been working on your Elvis impersonation over the years? You know, it's something that kind of came naturally to me just from listening to to Elvis as much and and watching his movies and shows and stuff. And I have I have Sirius XM in my car and the Elvis radio uh, channel is almost one I listen to almost exclusively when I'm driving around. Wow. Okay, so that's how this took off. Skylar, I, I want to bring you into the conversation. When did you first become aware of Hawkeye Elvis? Um, I suppose when I was a student at Iowa, I, I knew of him. I don't believe we ever ran into each other. I went to some of the games and tailgated and whatnot, um, but I don't think I ever ran into him. I would probably remember more than Gray because he meets <laughs> like 300 people a game. <laughs> But um, it wasn't until later uh, that um, uh, my RA, my freshman RA, uh, is an accountant, and he worked with Greg during his day job, and he, you know, just sent me a text, and he's like, "This is kind of funny. I just worked with Hawkeye Elvis," and I was, and I thought that was funny, but then you know, a day goes by, and I was thinking about it more, and I was like, "That's actually really interesting. Do you think you could give me his email? Like, would that be appropriate?" And he's like, "Let me ask him," and Greg, you know, was up for it, and so kind of where it went from there. I called them up and we uh, started cooking up a project together. What did you expect, Skylar, when you first got in touch with Greg? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, initially, I was just really interested in this idea of somebody that does this, you know, dresses up and goes to these games. I was curious, like, what kind of the behind the scenes, because I was like, there has to be something interesting. And one, how someone decides to start doing this and two, what is it actually like at the games? Um, and so I, I came to, I think it was like the first few games right after COVID lockdown in terms of football games was lifted. Um, I can't remember who we played first, maybe Indiana or something. Indiana, I went to that yep. game and, and then I went to the Iowa State game and uh, it was those first two games where I got, you know, started to get an idea of what the project would be. Um, and that obviously just changes as you go. Cause I didn't know anything about his mother at first. I didn't know she sewed his outfits or his costumes or anything like that. That kind of came naturally as me and Greg got to know each other. Uh, those, those elements. Came right. Out. And you ended up spending two and a half years following Greg around. <clears throat> yeah. I think it sounds a, like, like it is a long time, but honestly we didn't shoot a ton 
it's just obviously you're limited to the schedule of the, the football team. And um, so we probably only shot, I don't know, like 10, 11, 12 days total over those times. So a lot of the time was just sitting down and looking through the footage, but then also talking with Greg and kind of, you know, figuring out what we could keep doing to keep making this film, um, you know, bigger and uh, inco incorporating more ideas than, uh, you know, we initially thought. Well, and it's a, it's a really beautiful short film that, you know, of course it's about Hawkeye Elvis, but mostly it's about Greg and his mom. And it, it's just so lovely. Skylar, was there a moment where you realized, oh, this is not the story that I thought I was going to tell. This is a much more powerful story. Oh, I appreciate you saying the, those kind of words. Um, yeah, I mean, I think a big part of it was when we started to talk about what she was going through health-wise. And I think also just, like I said, I didn't really know much about his mom at first. Once he started to explain that she had an Elvis room and sewed the costumes and she was really the big Elvis fan, that's when she started to get incorporated. But then it was when I started to film just those two hanging out, you know, and their relationship, I think, is what really sprung the film forward. Because I think I probably could have been done earlier if it wasn't for that. I was just really interested in, in being with them and filming those moments. And, uh, you know, you sometimes you get lucky and you get really special things that you wouldn't get in an interview necessarily. And I think that's what why I kept going back. That's why I kind of kept prolonging the project to... Uh, to keep trying to find those those uh, those special moments. Well, and I want to play another moment from the film because a lot of this short film does focus on Greg, on your relationship with your mom and your mother's worsening dementia. But let's listen to a little bit of audio from when you guys are sitting together and watching a game on television. A little deep. Ooh! Nope. A little deep. A smidge too far. Yeah, where this? Yeah, this is my official Iowa. What are you Iowa doing? Thing. He's filming me. Why? Because he's a filmmaker. All right. What is he doing? He's doing a documentary about me. Oh, I have some information for you. We know. <laughs> I'm sure you do. You know, it hasn't been officially diagnosed, but she's got early onset uh, dementia. I didn't think about any of those things yesterday, and it just. It was just so nice to be able to put all of that stuff aside for an afternoon and just have fun again. Isn't it nice to not think about any of that for a day? Again, that's just a moment from the new documentary about Hawkeye Elvis. You can find it on YouTube on a channel called Nowness. You can also just search on YouTube for Hawkeye Elvis and you will find it. And uh, Greg, that's such a poignant moment because you are having such a good time with your mom. You clearly connect with your mom over Elvis, over the football and, and love spending time together. And as someone's health is declining, it can be hard to find those moments of joy. What do you think about when you see that in the film you know charity it's it's a little bittersweet um especially this fall for me because mom's health finally got to the point where she wasn't able to live uh independently anymore and had to move into a memory care unit and uh you know for starters i'm so thankful to skylar that he reached out initially to me because now i've i've got this this wonderful 
I don't want to call it a time capsule, but but how often do you get to have someone just record your moments, your sort of private, intimate moments with somebody you love, and have that forever? And uh, it's it's like I said, it's bittersweet because I know that I'm not going to have those opportunities to do that again with her. Uh, but at the same time, I'm thankful that I've got that memory. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm talking with Greg Zuko. He is Hawkeye Elvis and the subject of a new documentary by filmmaker Skylar Knutson. We'll continue in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. With me right now is Hawkeye Elvis. He is a Hawkeye super fan who's been going to the Hawkeye football games and a basketball game or two dressed up as Elvis Presley, but decked out in jumpsuits that are bedazzled in black and gold. Definitely Hawkeye fan Elvis jumpsuits. He's been going to games like that for the last 13 years or so, and he is a huge fan favorite. He's also the subject of a new short documentary. And his name is Greg Suko. He is with me now. Filmmaker Skylar Knutson, the man behind the documentary, is also here. You can find the documentary on YouTube. You can search for Hawkeye Elvis and it will pop right up. And the documentary doesn't just show us Hawkeye Elvis in action. It also paints a portrait of a beautiful relationship between a mother and a son and a mother who is struggling with dementia and some serious changes to her life. Um, Greg, just before the break, we we were talking about that because there are these beautiful moments where you and your mom really connect over football and you and your mom really connect over Elvis. And even though she is losing her memory, it's clear that you're having such a good time together. This started as a connection between the two of you because she is uh, an amateur seamstress and also a huge Elvis fan. Can you tell me a little bit about how the two of you have made this your thing together over the last 13 years? Sure. Um, it's, it's interesting. For her birthday a few years ago, um, my mom had been to Graceland once and she was 14 years old and her dad was, they were driving back to Iowa, I think from Florida. They stopped in Graceland and my mom stood outside the gates of Graceland and got a picture uh, taken as a 14-year-old. Uh, for her birthday uh, a couple of years ago, I took mom down to Memphis and we, we recreated that picture of mom now in her 70s standing in front of the gates. Um, and, and that was, that was really cool. Um, when, when we drive to Iowa city, um, you know, mom lived in Boone, uh, she's also a big sort of old country music fan. And that kind of ties back to Elvis's roots and that type of music. And we'd listen to two different stations. We'd listen to Willie's Roadhouse. We'd listen to the Elvis channel. And then we'd 
we'd talk about the game and make jokes. And uh, mom's always um, mom's always loved sports and loved football. Uh, even before I started doing this, uh, we would always pick like one road trip game of the year. Like Iowa played at Arizona State uh, 20 years ago, and so mom and I flew down there and went to the game. And uh, that's always just kind of been our thing is uh, is going to games. And she would always go to the early games with me. She would want to go to the late ones when it was a little cold, a little chilly. But uh, that was just always our thing. And, and to be able to sort of blend these things that we love and have it come into everything that this has become has been kind of neat. Yeah, she must have had so much fun seeing how big Hawkeye Elvis got. Do you remember any of her reactions when you started showing up on the local newscasts and, and, and in many other places? Yeah. And she's like, Oh, I created a damn monster. And (laughs) you know, she, you know, being, being a mom, she's always going to, she's not going to let my, my ego or my head get too big, uh, which is nice to sort of keep me in check. Uh, One of the things she would always do to get a kick out of is uh, she'd get one of those sort of hand click counter things. Uh, And because she was always, she wanted to keep track of, of how many pictures we would do in a day. And usually for football games, it was, you know, it was 250 to 300, but I do remember when I went to the Rose Bowl on New Year's Day in 2016, it was well over 600 pictures. Wow. Oh, my goodness. And <laughs> so as as this got bigger and bigger, tell me a little bit about how that changed the game experience for you. Because, I mean, you've been a fan a long time, going to the games and suddenly being the center of attention. It, how does that shift things? It you know I always I I always have one game uh, for both football and basketball. I've got season tickets for both where I don't dress up, so where I can just go to the game as a fan. But I it, it's turned into a thing, charity, where I I really look at this as a performance or a job that I love, and um, you know so so when I when I roll into Iowa City and I'm dressed, I'm. I kind of consider myself on the clock and I, and my, my head gets into that sort of performance mode that I can really, you know, you know, anybody who wants a photo or, or an interaction is, is really getting something kind of different and kind of fun rather than, you know, just some guy dressed up as Elvis. I really want to become that for that, that period of time when I'm dressed up. Well, we have another short clip from the film that that gives us a little bit of insight into really how seriously you take this role and and how hard it is. Uh, <laughs> this is from the end of the day when the Elvis disguise comes off when you're in your car. I forgot how uh, taxing, and it takes a, a lot, day. man. It's a long day. It's a lot. And now, Hawkeye Elvis is gone, and I'm just some dude sitting in his car. Is an <laughs> I mean, Greg, it really must be a lot of work. I mean, obviously, you're having a great time, but that must be exhausting. It it takes a lot. And it was interesting, too, because that was from the first, you know, the first game back post-COVID when, when there could be a crowd there. And again, normally, I, I, I don't dress up for the first game of the year because it's usually still at the end of August or early September, and it's blazing hot. And black, non-breathable polyester in a wig is not exactly... <laughs> the attire for 90 degrees and sunny, but I felt like I had to do it for this one because it was the first time that people had been back uh, in the stadium. And it had been a couple of years probably since I'd really, you know, done the whole thing for a full day. But uh, again, I just, I have so much fun doing it and, and the people that I interact with still really enjoy it. And so 
as long as those two things are happening, I'm going to keep doing it. I'm talking with Hawkeye Elvis, Greg Zuko, and also filmmaker Skylar Knutson, who has created a short documentary about Greg. You can find it on YouTube if you search for Hawkeye Elvis. And now, Skylar, we've already talked about the fact that, that when you started following Greg around, there were a lot of surprises to this. But I would love to get your perspective. I mean, you thought, oh, this is fun. This is weird. This is interesting. I want to find out more. But <laughs> tell me about witnessing the power of Hawkeye Elvis at these football games. What did you find out close up once you started really paying attention? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of interesting, because I don't have a lot, I don't know basically anybody that uh, Greg knew. So people would be coming up to him at these games and have, you know, they Greg would like know their child or know about their work. And he would ask them these really direct questions and it would be like, you know, 150 some people during that tailgate. So, you know, you see how, through and I don't think he I think a lot of these people he had met because of tailgating and so you see um that you know tailgating in these football games do create this this incredibly large and connected community and uh Greg I think is at the very heart of it um he certainly stands out and so people see him and they're just like running up to him and uh I just I think it's amazing that um you know this just putting on this costume had uh, opened up that world to him. Now, as I mentioned, you spent two and a half years following Greg around and and putting this documentary together. I suspect there are a lot of different stories that you felt you could have told. I mean, this is a, a short documentary. It's only about 10 minutes long. And the heart of it is Greg's relationship with his mom. But what are some of the other stories where if you felt like you had unlimited time, you wanted to tell? Sure. Um, I think, I mean, one of the initial ideas was capturing, um, obviously, him in, in, in the Elvis uh, costume, but also uh, the first time coming back from COVID. And so that was one of the first ideas in how, you know, this whole uh, tailgating brought, you know, brought this out. But that wasn't, a net, and it wasn't really the story I ended up wanting to tell. And I didn't think I got enough footage in that first game. So you know, you keep going on. But I think, you know, later on, it really, I really just honed in on him and his mom. And most of our shoots became about that. It was like, I was coming because they would be together and they would be going to the game or going out to eat or whatever it is. Um, I just kind of honed in on that once I, I think you just know when you know, I'm sure you guys have this experience too, when you're working on stories, you just, you, you end up seeing the thread that's, that connects with you most and you, you just follow that. Did you consider making a longer film? Um, I have, and me and Greg have talked about it. We filmed quite a bit um, that obviously does not make it. Like I shared a four and a half hour. It's it's not an uh, it's not a film, but it's uh, <laughs> I shared. It would not be uh, to the general public something that I think people would sit through, but it's uh, just moments of him and his mom, like very raw and unedited. You see all of my my errors in terms of shooting and. So, you know, we have a ton of footage and uh, we've talked about continuing to film potentially. And um, I think just with documentary and the way that I've been doing this, you just keep shooting and things reveal themselves as you're shooting. And so there's threads, you know, to follow. Um, but I think in terms of, you know, the film industry, you've, if you're going to make a short film, you got to keep it pretty tight um, in order for it to get out into the world. And I think we've 
been successful in that. What kind of reaction have you been getting from people who've been watching? Really nice emails. And uh, Greg has as well, uh, you know, people that have either, you know, had a photo with him, something as simple as that. They're like, oh, yeah, we met him at this game. And, you know, they were here and they post the photo. And so they're getting a chance to, um, you know, relive some memories uh, in that way. But also people emailing us about having the experience of their parents having dementia and how this, you know, this film just made them consider certain things again and and think through, you know, the time spent and, and making sure that we're cherishing those moments. And so I think it's, it's interesting. Like it seems a lot of people are exercising their memory when they're watching this, which is incredible because I think it directly um, relates to what the film's about. And, you know, this idea of memory and memory loss and also how I think this costume is, a symbol of memory between them. And it's not just like memories aren't just in our heads. They're also in the physical things we make. And I think that also relates to why I'm interested in filmmaking. It is like Greg talked about, this is a time capsule for him and his mom. I think that's what film does when it's at its best is it captures those moments and and allows us to hold on to some memories that potentially would otherwise fade. Greg, when you are going through this experience with someone, and I have someone in my life that I love very much who has dementia as well, when you're going through that experience, there are so many things to worry about all the time. And and you really verbalize that in the film about how it was so wonderful to spend a day with your mom where you didn't think about it, where you were able to just be together and have a good time with each other and and not think about the the more serious problems that she was encountering that you as a caregiver and and someone who loves her is also encountering how does looking at the film and that footage that Skylar shared with you how did that how did that change your perception of of really what you were going through with your mom you know i <laughs> this is going to sound strange but you know skylar would send me different cuts early cuts of it I couldn't bring myself to watch it um, because I was, you know, I, I didn't want to, you know, in my head, I still was, you know, trying to keep, you know, the, the idea of my mom as, as her brain being fully intact and funny and smart and snarky. And the first, you know, when I finally did watch it, it was hard. Um, But at the same time, it, it helped me sort of realize you know, how I could be a better caregiver, if that makes any sense. And, and, and for me, just maybe, you know, it kind of reinforced that I was sort of doing the right things as a caregiver for her, um, you know, because this, you know, this is really kind of a, a relatively new thing. There, there isn't, you know, there wasn't a book on how to, how to deal with loved ones going through this 20 years ago. Um, the other thing that's come out of this for me is just the, the amount of support and how far reaching this is, because I've had so many people reach out to me after seeing this film going, Hey, I'm going through the same thing with my mom or, Hey, I'm going through the same thing here. And there was a, uh, a journalist out of Iowa city who had co-written a book called, um, Oh, I'm going to forget the name of it now. Um, my two, uh, my two Lorraines. Um, and it's about uh, a former governor of Wisconsin whose wife was going through um, Alzheimer's and dementia, and she helped co-write the book with them. And she said, hey, I want to send you a copy of this. So for me, that just just seeing the, 
you know, how many people are affected by this and how many people could connect with this. That that's that's been very helpful. You are also tapping into something that is so powerful for people with memory loss, and that is music. And that may have been sort of an accidental part of this, but it's been shown time and time again that as people lose their memory, music can can really ignite different parts of their brain and help them engage in a powerful way. I suspect your mom will never forget the music of Elvis Presley. What has it been like to share that with her? Oh, it's been fantastic. And again, this is something I, I've loved Elvis since I was a kid. And and for, you know, it, it's always great when you've got uh, a parent and a child who can uh, connect, not just on the same music genre, um, but, but it really kind of shows how much Elvis as an artist um, is cross-generational. And uh, it's, it's something that, that her and I had really been connected to and able to uh, have together over the years, which is really kind of unique. Yeah. Can she still sing along with all her favorite Elvis hits? Uh, yeah, it's interesting because it, with, with memory loss, with Alzheimer's and dementia, it's, it's interesting in that, I mean, she could, my mom was an English major and she can recite all of Shakespeare. She can tell you all these things from her long-term memory that are still intact. Um, and then that's the hard, that's the hard part with this process and this disease is the juxtaposition of, you know, oh, my mom can tell me who wrote this song from the fifties, uh, but doesn't remember what she had for breakfast. Yeah. And that's, that's been the hard part. Well, Greg, it's, it's a joyful film to watch and a great reminder that even when we're losing someone in this way that we we need to be present and engage in those moments of joy and love. And even if she doesn't remember it, I know it makes a difference. So, Greg, thank you so much for talking with us and, and for sharing your story. Thanks for having me on, Charity. I really appreciate it. Greg Succo is Hawkeye Elvis and filmmaker Skylar Knutson. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having us on. Skylar Knutson is the man behind the new documentary about Hawkeye Elvis. You can find it on YouTube and a channel called Nowness, or you can just search for Hawkeye Elvis. Trust me, you'll find it. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. We know that exercise can be beneficial for mental health. Evidence-based research supports this, but we still don't fully understand why exercise is beneficial. And that means we don't know exactly how to harness its power. Jacob Meyer is trying to fix that. He is an associate professor of kinesiology and director of the Wellbeing and Exercise Laboratory in the College of Human Sciences at Iowa State University. A recently awarded $3.6 million grant from the National Institutes of Mental Health will help to make this research possible. Meyer and his team are recruiting 200 adults with depression for a 16-week exercise trial, and these trials will go on over the next several years. 
Jacob, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. And and first of all, let me help me understand the problem because we do know that exercise can be beneficial for mental health. I also know that a lot of people who are struggling with their mental health or struggling with depression get really sick of people saying, "Hey, exercise would help with that." <laughs> we 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 know that it works, but we don't really understand it fully and we can't make it work for everybody, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's tricky because sort of um Deep down, we all know that when we move, that's got a whole bunch of positive effects. Um, mental health and physical health, you know, go sort of hand in hand there. But there's a few things that that make it tricky to do, and particularly in adults with uh, mental health concerns, there's uh, significant issues with motivation or desire or um, the ability to sort of get up and get moving. And so some of the stuff that we're trying to look at is trying to understand um, – you know, how is it that exercise helps from a neurobiological perspective? And if we can figure out exactly what's happening, you know, deep down, uh, that would help us to then design the best types of interventions that would maximally improve whatever those mechanisms are. And so, you know, we're sort of moving from like, yeah, we know it's a good idea to what are the types of, of ways that it's working? And then how do we target those the best with our our movements, which hopefully can take a lot of the the frustration out of that. So you're you're basically talking about figuring out how a mental health provider could actually prescribe an exercise plan that has been proven to show that it helps. Yeah, yeah. So the the idea is really what you know. What is say I walk into a clinic and I'm like, you know, this is my concern is is a mental health related concern and depression in particular, you know, what's the best thing for me? Um, so far, we have a lot of good evidence to suggest that generally any exercise is going to be helpful. We have a lot of evidence that aerobic exercise could be particularly helpful and maybe as helpful as, as starting a new antidepressant medication, for example. But we don't know very much about resistance exercise. So weightlifting, but also body weight exercises or other sort of resistance focused exercise. And so what this new project is trying to do is to get us that data of within the idea of resistance exercise, what are the best ways for us to go about this? And then, you know, how effective is it really in in helping to improve uh, depression? Why do you want to focus on resistance exercise? So there's a a number of good reasons. Um, one, One, of course, being that there's a lot of people who, you know, have thought about uh, aerobic exercise, maybe jogging or or walking or or running, and have decided, you know, that's that's not for me. Um, I, there's a lot of people you can probably think of in your own, you know, social sphere that you're like, you know, that this is not the sort of thing that they want to do. But resistance exercise appeals to a, a potentially overlapping but also distinct set of people, um, and is something that might be uh, another option for what people might be able to do. The other thing that uh, we think might be particularly interesting about resistance exercise is that the way that resistance exercise influences the body is distinct from the way that aerobic exercise does. So with each um, physical movement uh, repetition within a set in which you may be doing 10 repetitions of a given exercise, you know, that sort of patterned activation of muscle activity might have um, some important biological sort of consequences that would be really helpful for something like uh, depression. And so we're we're looking at it as another option, but also as a way for us to try to uncover what might be going on sort of underneath the the hood of, of the brain and the body 
to help us better understand what's happening and then how do we best prescribe it down the road. Tell me how you've designed this study. I mentioned it's going to be a long-term study. You're recruiting a lot of people to participate, 200 adults with depression for this 16-week exercise trial. Tell me what a participant would experience. Yeah, so one of the cool things about this uh, study itself is that we've everybody's getting resistance exercise training. Um, what we're really interested in is does resistance exercise training help to reduce the symptoms of depression uh, that are the most characteristic? And then at the same time, does it help to improve um, some uh, patterns of brain blood flow that we know are sort of off or dysregulated in people with uh, depression? And then does this sort of target that mechanism to achieve its antidepressant effects. And so for anyone who's in the study, they'll go through 16 weeks, twice a week of resistance exercise training at either a high dose or a lower dose that's more focused on sort of the breathing patterns, um, but still doing the resistance exercise training twice a week for 16 weeks. And then we'll do uh, sort of full clinical and then also um, brain blood flow assessments at, at baseline halfway through the intervention at the end, and then for a couple follow-ups up to a year out to really see, does this work in the short term? And then, you know, are there consistent effects uh, that last, you know, much beyond the end of the intervention, which would be really powerful, especially for something like depression that is often uh, cyclical and that people tend to, to relapse sometime, you know, down the, down the road. And if we can come up with intervention, particularly behavioral ones that reduce the risk of relapse, that would be really powerful too. So you will be um, trying to get people to self-report what they're feeling. Will you also be studying their bodies, their brains, to to try to see if you can really categorize or document physical changes? Yeah. So as part of this, we will be uh, using... Uh, Doppler ultrasound and a couple of other techniques to non-invasively measure blood flow in different areas of um, the brain and in in the the vessels leading up to and coming from the brain, and that helps us to understand exactly where uh, the blood is flowing and in particular in relation to areas in the brain that have been uh, either under or over activated in past research, so that we can start to understand, you know, maybe for somebody it seems like, you know, their depression improves a lot from it, but maybe the brain blood flow regulation that we think is happening doesn't happen quite how we expect it. So then the question is, well, okay, if that's not it, what else might be going on? And and how do we start to unravel the the underlying biology, both of depression in general, which is more of a black box than, than we really want it to be, but also, you know, the underlying sort of neurobiology of, of resistance exercise. Will all of this research be taking place in Ames? Yeah, so the the intervention itself is twice a week in Ames. We have a sort of a purpose-built exercise facility that has um, sort of standard-ish machines that you would expect to see in, in any um, gym setting, but that have um, like USB chips that we can plug into it. And it records a whole bunch of data, you know, just from each movement of the machine that allows us to you know, kind of exercise nerd out in looking at the kinds of data that we get back from every single, you know, lift in every single session that every single participant does. So because we need that kind of um, uh, tracking of the movement, then we have people come in in person for for each of the visits. Um, But a nice thing, you know, this uh, project is funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, 
which allows for us to have um, funding for travel for participants who maybe aren't, you know, immediately local, but have to come from a little bit farther away. Yeah. How are you recruiting people? Um, anything and everything we can do to recruit people. Um, so we're recruiting people um, through Iowa State, you know, related uh, campus and things locally in Ames. We're working with a number of clinical partners um, who might identify people with uh, mental health concerns and then send them our way or or other therapy or local mental health clinics. And then um, working with some of the major employers in our sort of area and expanding out of our area who have like employee wellness and other programs that would be you know, uh, this would be the right sort of thing that they would be really interested in trying to highlight and, and offer to their their employees. So, you know, it's really kind of a, however however we can recruit people, we're, we're excited to, to give the opportunity for everybody to, to engage. So I can imagine there are people listening right now who think, oh, actually, this, this sounds like me. What, tell me exactly who you're looking for so people know if they should get in touch. Yeah, yeah. So it's, um, we're looking for adults, 18 to 65, um, who have uh, depression. The focus is really people who, like, their major clinical concern is depression. So it would be somebody who would be looking for maybe a new treatment idea or approach for um, treating their depression. And um, this is, you know, one one possibility. So, um, and that, you know, there's, there's not a whole lot of exclusion criteria, you know, beyond um, trying to keep us with a relatively consistent group of folks. But this is really designed because of the stage of development of the the research. We're really trying to take this more broadly out into the community. We're trying to get 200 people. And so in those cases, you want to, you know, say, okay, what's our, what's the the average person who happens to, to be in this category and, you know, bring them in and see, see how it works for them. Do they need to have been diagnosed with depression by a, a professional or is it, you know, a situation where somebody could say, oh, I, I'm pretty sure I've been struggling with this? Yeah, that's a great question. One we get all the time, um, people don't need to be previously diagnosed. Um, we go through a, a complete, um, really thorough clinical interview with every single uh, potential participant. And based upon that clinical interview, um, not based upon, you know, their their medical records or anything based upon that specific clinical interview that we do. Um, that's what uh, tells us about, you know, current mental health status, which is the inclusion criteria that we work off of. So, you know, people can, who have said, like, I've never really wanted to go to the doctor for this before, but I know it's been a problem and it is certainly a problem now, sometimes after the holidays or whatever these things can come about. Um, you know, we're, we're happy to run through the, the mental health interview with anybody um, to try to figure that out. Now, living with depression is really, really difficult for a lot of people, and they may be seeking other treatments. Do you try to control for that? If someone has been started on a new medication, would that mean that this would not be the right study for them because they don't know what might be benefiting them? Yeah, it's tricky because then, you know, someone just starts a new treatment and then enrolls in our study the week after is any benefit that they see in terms of their mental health related to starting that new treatment or is it from what they're doing with us? And so we really want to get kind of a, a unique check on is starting a resistance exercise training program really the beneficial thing? Um, and if that's the case, you know, then we can test that pretty well. And the way to do that is that we have to have a um, sort of a washout period or really a, a consistency period of at least eight weeks where people haven't changed what they've been doing. Um, but if you know, someone has been taking medications for the last 
eight weeks or maybe for the last year or five years, and yet they're currently still depressed, then, you know, they would be someone who would want a new different treatment option and they would be someone who would be eligible for for this given study. Okay, so they could try that in addition to the medication that they're on as long as they're not changing dosing or, or something like that, trying something else new at the same time. So if, if people are thinking, oh, this does sound like me, how do they get in touch? Yeah, great. Um, so our um, lab website has all of the information about the study, more information. You can look through the informed consent and other things. But if people are just like, I want to learn more and you know, I don't want to run through the internet to try to find a whole bunch of stuff. If they just send our um, my lab email, so it's the Wellbeing and Exercise Lab. So the lab email is well, W-E-L-L-E-X for exercise. So W-E-L-L-E-X at iastate.edu. Um, an email that says, hey, I'm interested, we'll send them whatever sorts of information they want and, and can go from there. So um, just a, a quick email can can start the process. And and this is a five-year study, although you, I'm sure you'll be constantly monitoring people and, you know, the, the study, each participant participates for about 16 weeks. So do you feel like you will have results before five years or are you going to come back on the show in five years and tell us what you found? <laughs> um, yeah, so as part of the way that the clinical trials are set up is that um, it's really important to stay blinded to the the overall results of the study until you get all the way to the end, because you never know what, you know, either intentionally or unintentionally might happen if you're aware of what's going on along the way. And so, um, you know, we won't know big picture what happens until we get to the very end of the very final person. But, you know, one of the cool things about a study like this is that everybody's getting the active intervention at some dose, you know, of, of higher or low. And so, you know, in terms of thinking about like, well, do I want to sign up for that study where I might end up in the, the no treatment, like let's sit and wait group right. here, there is none of, there isn't one of those. Um, and so it, it offers everybody the opportunity to, to go through it and engage with it. Um, which I, you know, I'm excited about. Right. And everybody's going to build a little bit of muscle. So <laughs> every, everybody benefits at some level. Um, we only have a, a little over a minute left, but we do know that exercise is beneficial for our mental health. Do you have some advice for people who are listening to this and thinking, OK, I'm not going to participate in that study, but I would really like to to try to have a positive impact from exercise in my life, even if it's hard to get started, do you, what kind of basic advice would you give to folks? Yeah, I think two things are are important to think about here. One is that um, you don't have to go through a 16-week program to get benefits from exercise. Even just exercising one time leads people to feel better afterwards. Oftentimes, people feel uh, more energetic after the exercise than less energetic, more um, less depressed, uh, less stressed, tend to have better sleep afterwards. And so even just deciding today, like, okay, I'm going to go for, you know, a brisk walk around the neighborhood or outside or just up and down the stairs a whole bunch of times if you're working from home and you can't leave the house or for whatever reason, any, you know, the short-term benefits are real and you get them right away. And then that can maybe lead into longer-term habits. Um, and then the, you don't have to go and, you know, sweat until there's no sweat left in your body to see benefits. One of the cool things, especially about depression research, is that we see that even a short, um, even a lighter intensity workout tends to give as much or maybe the same or maybe even better benefits as a higher intensity workout in terms of reducing people's symptoms of depression. So in that case, doing something is really the, the recommendation and even short 
and light intensity stuff can be really helpful too. Jacob Meyer, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Jacob Meyer is an associate professor of kinesiology. He's also director of the Wellbeing and Exercise Laboratory in the College of Human Sciences at Iowa State University. He's directing research focusing on 200 adults with depression, putting them through a 16-week exercise trial with resistance training. And if you're interested, you can email wellex, W-E-L-L-E-X, at iastate.edu. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. The show is produced by Caitlin Troutman, Samantha McIntosh, and Danny Gear. We had help today from Maddie Willis and Steve Cooper. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is Talk of Iowa.